The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org. Um, this is Shep Shepherd. Uh, he goes by that name, Shep, uh, but his real name, I have to tell you, because it's glorious, is Albert Luck Shepherd the Fifth. Mm, <laughs> wow. You can shorten that to, to Shep, but um, anyway, he did his undergraduate at, at, at Union College, is it Union University? Mm-hmm. University Union University. Tennessee, and did his uh, PhD at Aberdeen University, where he studied T.H. T.F. Torrance. T.F. Torrance. Um, and this is uh, a paper that he's been working on for a long time, and uh, we wrote up together from Montgomery, so we got to talk, and this is something he's, like I said, poured a lot of time into, and I think he would appreciate any helpful feedback, uh, and would like to be able to publish it. So do him the favor, and uh, attend, and offer some helpful criticism, perhaps, and point out some strengths, so that we can, we can help him, uh, as his friend, get this to a place where it might be able to get published. So without further ado, Thank you, Clifford. Uh, so this paper, I had uploaded a draft initially by the deadline that Brad had set, and then subsequently uploaded a new draft. So if you're reading along, make sure you are uh, reading the most up-to-date version. What's the, what's the name of it? Draft 4? Draft 4, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, for the sake of time, I'm only going to touch very lightly on the first section. Um, And really this paper is a reflection and an exposition of the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does that actually mean uh, in scripture? What does that mean for us as theologians or philosophers or just as lay Christians? Um, So I'm going to start on page two. Scripture does not limit holy fear to the life of the individual. Okay, so fear is not just this private sense of respect for who God is. Rather, Scripture enthrones holy fear in covenant, law, cult, and kingdom. The resources of holy fear are natural. They're rooted in the census divinitatis and man's apprehension of the order of reality. John Calvin observes that even the pagan has a kind of fear of the divine. Uh, It's the seed of religion. And this fear is not merely consciousness of God's existence. It's not merely um, awareness that there's a God out there, but of his presence his living presence, and his majesty. God meets us in the fabric of the world, Calvin says, which is a beauteous theater of his wisdom. And the response of man to God's providence and governance is fear. Among the pagans, this fear is at root a sense of accountability to someone greater than oneself. And it produces structures of communal life that seek to emulate the natural order and to secure justice. 
and suppression of this fear results in social disorder. Man's knowledge of God and of himself are intertwined. This is Calvin's famous observation at the beginning of the Institutes. As the image of God, man is endowed with a rational nature and the royal authority and capacity to exercise dominion over creation. Human nature is fit to this vocation as a mediator because man is both imago Dei and imago mundi. He is a microcosm containing within himself a bright mirror of the creator's works. So there's a sense in which for the uh, reformers, man unites heaven and earth. Formed out of the earth, enlivened by the spirit, a rational soul embodied, man is a mediator at the frontier of creaturely existence, as Aquinas puts it. All right. So I'm going to move on to section two and attempt to define what this fear is. The prophet Isaiah describes the messianic king of the royal line of Jesse as having both wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 2 to 4, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The significance of this passage for historical Christian interpretation of both the meaning of wisdom and of holy fear cannot be understated. Isaiah chapter 11 is frequently a central passage in Christian treatments of these subjects. And that's because the resources in this passage are sufficient to supply a biblical and systematic theology of holy fear, which is grounded in the salvific economy of the Holy Trinity. The spirit resting upon the king is new creation imagery. It harkens back to the world's emergence from the judgment of the flood, and it points forward to Christ's baptism. The Messianic king's wisdom is displayed as sound judgment, equity, and order. He exercises dominion by protecting the land from evil. That's what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. And as a warrior and a wise judge, he is David and Solomon combined. He supremely manifests both holy fear and wisdom. Translators and commentators have found the Hebrew phrase Yerat Yahweh to be difficult to precisely define. Fear is a general catch-all rendering. 
In the Septuagint, the phrase is almost always rendered as phobos curiu or phobos theu. So either the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. But in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the Septuagint deviates from this pattern. And instead, it translates the Hebrew Yerat Yahweh just as Eusebius, piety. And this deviation appears to be intentional because in Isaiah 11, verse 3, the Septuagint immediately returns to the typical rendering Phobu Theu. And the Vulgate actually follows suit and provides Pietatis in 11, verse 2, and Timorous Domini in 11, verse 3. And it's actually from this distinction between piety and fear that the uh, medievals uh, found this idea that there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in this passage. And, of course, the reformers uh, disagreed and said, well, there's only six things mentioned, right? You're drawing this from the Latin Bible, which is incorrect. Um, in Greek thought, phobos theu conveys primarily fear of divine punishment. So this is in Greek philosophy. Though such fear may be necessary, and it may be natural, for the Greeks it is not to be regarded as a virtue. Often, phobos theu is the kind of fear or panic that the gods cast upon man in war, which the Greeks and the Romans hoped would afflict their enemies. By contrast, Eusebia is an ethical virtue. It's piety, it's godliness. It lacks a sense of shock and awe associated with phobos and instead entails the disposition of showing honor, uh, fulfilling one's duty towards family, nation, and the gods. And primarily, it constitutes the moral adhesive that binds the life of the individual to the life of the polis, to the city. Notably, phobotheu uh, is a theocentric concept. This fear is created in man because of the presence of the object that evokes it. But by contrast, Eusebia is an anthropocentric virtue. It does not require an object to be present. It only requires a character of human religiosity. Uh, one can just as well honor the dead as the living. And in Roman political and religious life, it would come to emphasize the duty of holding continuity with the past and venerating the foundations of civilization. So here we can see a dichotomy emerge in the Christian interpretation of Yerat Yahweh that persists throughout much of the Christian tradition, distinguishing servile fear, this is the fear of punishment, the fear that God is going to destroy you, from filial fear. Uh, the former has to do with fear of punishment and profane superstition. The latter is piety, which warns us to keep our obligations to our country or our parents or our other kin. And Christian theologians often render filial fear or piety as a fear of offending one's beloved father. The distinction between Timor civilis and Timor filias is usually drawn in expositions of the proper conduct of human repentance. 
So fear in these contexts becomes an expression of remorsefulness. Put another way, uh, this filial fear is an aversion to the dishonor that would be brought about by shaming one's family, one's country, or one's faith. And sometimes this distinction features in some other treatments. For example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, it's raised in the discussion of Christian liberty, uh, showing that the faithful obey God not out of fear of being punished, but because they have filial reverence for God. Now, certainly, these attitudes attend holy fear in Scripture. They're associated with holy fear. But I would argue that they do not solely comprise holy fear in Scripture. And for the Romans, pietas is not just bound to the past, but also to the future. We can see this in the story of Pius Aeneas, the son of a Trojan prince and the goddess Venus, who is driven by the fates to found Rome. It's one of the core formative mythologies of Western civilization. And Aeneas' piety is expressed in that he is faithful to a divine calling, the fulfillment of which he will not live to see. He models the true Roman who participates in the building of an empire by a sense of divine right, which is rooted in the obligation to realize the vision of his ancestors and the destiny that the gods had promised to them. And such piety could be used by the Romans to justify cruelty, but with it also came the imposition of order and cultural identity. And we also see in Scripture that Abraham is a model of holy fear, um, but he is a, a model that is greater than that of Aeneas. He also is called to leave his people, to found a nation, and must trust that God is going to accomplish this thing, even though he's not going to live to see it. He knows God. He calls upon the name of the I Am, we're told repeatedly in Genesis. That, and that name is the surety of the covenant promises. Indeed, the presence of Yahweh is the presence of the promise for Abraham. He saw the day of the Lord and was glad. He understands that death itself cannot thwart the purposes of the living I am. Now I know that you fear God, says the Lord, when Abraham brings Isaac to Mount Moriah. Abraham's conduct on Mount Moriah is not pietas in the Roman sense. He's not acting merely out of a sense of duty that's owed. Blind religious obedience could belong to the abominable cults of the Canaanite uh, religions, human sacrifice. But Abraham obeys out of faith, knowing rightly God's character, and understanding himself, including his past and his future, rightly in relation to the presence of God. God will provide the sacrifice. This is a fear that perceives the deep order of things, an order beyond the chaos of sin and death, uh, perhaps analogous to what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic. Augustine says that it is pietas or eusebia which ought to be regarded as the fear that is the beginning of wisdom. But this doesn't mean 
that the fear of the Old Testament should be flattened to a kind of respectful regard for one's parents. Rather, this means for Augustine that the Romans reached a shadow of the truth and their understanding of pietas, but they misapprehended the destiny. The true destiny of man lies not in the empire of Rome, but in the city of God. For Augustine, the pietas of Rome is actually impiety. Its Eusebia is actually asebia. The Hebrew yurat is as different from the Roman pietas as Yahweh is from the Roman pantheon. The Septuagint's exceptional insertion of Eusebia into the key, keystone verses of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, is perhaps intended to communicate to the Greeks that their concept of piety actually finds its origin and fulfillment in the covenantal phobos curiu. In other words, the Septuagint is not using Eusebia to illumine Yerat Yahweh so much as vice versa by carefully and poetically juxtaposing it with Phobos Curiu, the Septuagint perhaps communicates that Eusebia is but a shadow and derivative of the true fear of the Lord. The piety that the Greeks knew by nature ought to be rendered is, revered, is revealed in the covenants as holy fear. And a similar kind of idea might be expressed in 1 Timothy 3.16 as Herman Bavink explains. Uh, Bavink says, quote, what Eusebia really is and ought to be was first revealed only in the gospel. So such fear cannot be adequately defined apart from recognition of the presence of the living God. As Maximus the Confessor reminds us, there's a fear in Scripture that endures forever throughout infinite ages, a fear that is always present even without remembrance of offenses committed. This fear existed before sin and will exist long after sin is no more because it is somehow rooted essentially by God in creation and makes clear to everyone his awe-inspiring nature, which transcends all kingship and power. Now, this kind of idea of holy fear as a mixture of dread and fascination um, has been picked up by later thinkers, most notably uh, Rudolf Otto. Um, and I'm not going to go into his thought. I, I speak about it a little bit here in the paper. Um, uh, if you heard my paper at one of the previous regional convivia, you may be familiar with my criticism of Otto. Um, but really, Otto has uh, the same kind of issue that a lot of modern Christians have, which is they, he limits holy fear to a kind of individual experience that's abstracted from the rest of life. <clears throat> In Isaiah, the Messianic king has the fear of the Lord in his humanity because he delights in the presence of God. Fear in scripture is associated with Yahweh's living presence. 
And living by that presence, he fulfills the destiny of man that threads throughout all of history. The gift of holy fear itself is a habitus of grace. It's bestowed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So John Owen interprets Isaiah verse 2 to refer to the Spirit's abiding and remaining in the humanity of Christ. Christ vicariously lives in holy fear and wisdom on our behalf through the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. The microcosm of his humanity, so perfectly ordered, surpassing the original union of Imago Dei and Imago Mundi, Christ transforms the entire cosmos and makes all things new. He is a new creation. Submitting sinlessly to the will of his Father, Christ exudes spirit-filled fear in his humanity. He takes up dominion. He disciples kings and nations in wisdom. And indeed, uh, it is revealed in the New Testament that he is the wisdom that ordered the universe. He is the fear of Isaac incarnate. He is the divine abiding presence, Emmanuel. The gift of holy fear that we are given by the indwelling spirit in our union with Christ ought to be understood within this Trinitarian, cosmological, covenantal, and eschatological context. We might speak of numinous dread or sublime awe or religious piety, but these concepts on their own barely scratch the surface of the biblical concept of the fear of the Lord. Holy fear belongs to the citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken amidst the upheaval and remaking of the universe. It is the response of the faithful to the God who is both transcendent and imminent, the God of glory who thunders over the waters of chaos, and the God who speaks intimately to his prophet in the thinnest silence. And if we're going to provide a definition here, uh, the fear of the Lord is the abiding, practiced virtue of continual awareness of God's presence and primacy as revealed both generally in nature and specially in the covenants. And in the words of John Davenant, such fear is constant and firm in the bosoms of the pious because God is always present to them and never ought or can be imagined as absent. In Scripture, we're told that the fear of the Lord must be practiced and indeed is commanded. It encompasses the whole duty of man. We are told that to fear the Lord is to lack nothing. Holy fear is a response to the gospel in the book of Acts and to God's forgiveness in the Psalms. And as the beginning of wisdom, it orders right understanding of the universe, not only of its state of being and character, but of the destiny of the universe and the new creation. The fear of the Lord is the governing principle of the kingdom of God. So that deals with the, the first half of the phrase, the fear of the Lord, but we also have to talk about the beginning of wisdom. So what is a biblical definition of wisdom? Well, wisdom is architectonic. 
And here I'm going to use, rely on Aristotle as someone who has observed as a pagan uh, what we might call biblical principles of wisdom expressed in creation. Aristotle distinguishes wisdom from mere acquired experience by analogy to the distinction between an architect and a skilled manual laborer. The latter knows simply that a thing is. He lays hold of it. He attends to what is directly in front of him. But the architect knows why a thing is. Wisdom is not mere competency or experience or skill. It is apprehension of the order of reality. For Aristotle, the wise man is an architect in that he knows the principles, causes, and ends of things. And Aquinas agrees with Aristotle on that point. The rational soul, for Aristotle, is in potentiality all existing things. The acquisition of wisdom is not an alteration of the soul, it's the perfection of the soul's nature. In other words, this acquisition is receptive and reconstructive. It's not creative or poetic. Through knowledge, the soul becomes all things. Actual knowledge is identical with its object. As man truly inhabits the world, the world in turn inhabits him. And Aristotle likens thinking to house building. A builder doesn't change his nature when he builds a house. He rather realizes his capacity to build. Similarly, the soul is not altered when it thinks. It rather progresses into the realization of its nature. So again, we have this reclamation of the idea uh, that man is a microcosm. Uh, by the world indwelling man, uh, man becomes more fully human. Uh, he fits his design. Wonder at the universe drives men to, the to philosophy uh, that they might not just know things, but know their principles, causes, and ends. And architectonic knowledge of this sort for Aristotle is divine. Philosophy is the soul's internalized architectonic reconstruction of the wisdom of God as it is made manifest in the order of the world. And for this reason, Aristotle says, this knowledge is better than all other knowledge. Wisdom makes man more perfectly human by making him more like God. Ultimately, man's contemplation of the divine and corresponding service to God form the overarching standard for virtuous life. And biblical wisdom is also architectonic in description. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 1 states, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Well, what is this house? If you read uh, many modern Old Testament commentaries on Proverbs, uh, they interpret this as a kind of patrician's manor, a house of wealth. And the gist of it is um, uh, when you acquire wisdom, you're, you're acquiring a wealth of knowledge. So wisdom uh, provides wealth. But this interpretation divests the passage of its Solomonic 
provenance and significance. We ought rather to join Athanasius in reading this seven-pillared house as the Solomonic temple. By typological extension, the house is also the incarnate Christ formed in the womb of Mary, and subsequently also the church. The temple, much like the tabernacle, is a microcosmic pedagogical and liturgical representation of the created order itself. While the imagery of seven pillars does not match the architectural descriptions of Solomon's temple, seven is the number of perfection, which is associated both with the days of creation and with the years of the temple's construction. Pillars are also often associated with the stability of the created order in Scripture. The divine act of creation is depicted in Scripture as an architectural project. And the preceding chapter in Proverbs depicts wisdom as being present with God at creation. In chapter 8, verse 30, uh, wisdom is present as aman, which is a difficult word. It only occurs once in Hebrew Scripture. And it is perhaps suggestive of a son apprenticing in the architectural work of his father. The text of Proverbs is that of a king instructing his son in wisdom, and the motif of the king as a builder is well attested in ancient Near Eastern royal inscriptions. If we parallel uh, Proverbs 9 with the descriptions of the temple's construction in 1 Kings, um, we see a number of recurring themes. For example, upon completing the temple, Solomon makes sacrifices, wisdom offers sacrifices. Uh, Solomon holds a feast, wisdom holds a feast. Solomon gathers the people who have been formerly worshiping in the high places. Wisdom sends out her maidens to gather people from the high places into her house. If Proverbs 9 is read as laden with the imagery of temple construction, then the wisdom that orders creation is being depicted as formative for the sacred space and worship practices of Israel. And in turn, the temple instructs Israel that creation itself is ordered towards the worship and fear of the Lord. This imagery also joins the promises of the Davidic covenant to the order and destiny of the universe itself. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant is established, and we are told that David's son will build a house for God's name, and in turn, God will make David's house and throne endure forever. Well, at the center of this promise is the union of the two houses. God promises that David's, of David's descendant that I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And notably, this covenant promise is unconditional. It's irrevocable. If David's son commits iniquity, God will discipline him, but he will not remove his love from him. And part of this covenant promise is also that God will plant Israel as he planted Eden in a place of Sabbath rest. But when this covenant is recapitulated to Solomon, 
it is attended by stark warnings. Iniquity will result in the destruction of the house and the uprooting of Israel from the land. Israel itself will become masal, a proverb, a warning to others who would abandon the wisdom and the fear of God. Solomon is a son of David, but he is not the son who will fulfill the covenant. Instead, Solomon's heart is led astray by women of folly, and he subsequently builds high places to false gods and abominations. He fits the description of woman folly in uh, Proverbs chapter 9 later. The Messianic king, the shoot of Jesse, who is filled with wisdom and holy fear, is depicted by the prophets as fulfilling both from God's side and from man's side the obligations of the Davidic covenant. He builds the temple, and even the far-off nations are brought in to participate in this new architectural project. Christ fulfills the covenant. The son of David, Christ grows up as an apprentice in the work of his father Joseph, who is a tecton. A tecton uh, in the ancient Near East was hired to build the parts of a building or house that were beyond the skill of his fellow townspeople. Uh, He was part builder, part architect, part contractor, and part artisan. Joseph's vocation is not arbitrary. He is carrying on the kingly house-building of his forefathers. Christ himself is the house of David and the house of God united in one son. He is the kingly line of David joined forever to the inheritance of all creation. And as Emmanuel, he is the fulfillment of the temple. He is himself the Eucharistic bread and wine that is prepared in the house of wisdom. He is the supper of the kingdom. And lastly, uh, Christ's identification as the wisdom of God in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30, uh, the wisdom that was present at creation and who makes all things new, is well established in the Christian tradition. And um, I won't recite the theological and exegetical argument here. But the church, too, is drawn into this fulfillment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul identifies himself as an architect, an architectone of the church, which has Christ as its foundation. And in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, much as Israel was planted like Eden, so also the church is depicted as being planted. The church is not just any building or garden. It is specifically described as a temple. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians not to build in accordance with the wisdom of the age, but the wisdom of God, which is Christ himself. It is for this purpose that Paul comes to the Corinthians as a father, bearing instruction in wisdom. Paul is participating in the fulfillment of Proverbs. The church is now the house that wisdom has built. And wisdom thus has an eschatological orientation. Aristotle's architectonic account of wisdom as philosophy, in which the order of the universe takes up residence in the soul, is true, but it's not the entire story. The world that the soul is to apprehend 
is the new creation in Christ. It's the new order that has been established in Christ. The church is to seek to have the mind of Christ. He is the architectonic principle, cause, and end of all things. The house of wisdom is the order of creation and the order of man's soul. The fear of the Lord teaches us that this house is a temple in which God's covenantal presence dwells. True wisdom requires the fear of the Lord so that it may properly know the architectonic design and order of all things, as creation has both its origin and end in God. How are we doing on time? Five minutes? Okay. So I'd like to uh, wrap up with a few concluding thoughts here on the relation between Christian theology and philosophy in light of this understanding of the fear of the Lord and wisdom. So when we say that, the, that holy fear is the beginning of wisdom, beginning doesn't just merely mean the uh, point of initiation. It is the sustaining origin. It's the principal component in the pursuit of wisdom at every point of its development. Uh, and on one level, this means for the church that theology is the queen of the sciences and philosophy is her handmaiden. Uh, when Aquinas uses the architectonic imagery that he draws from Aristotle, he says Aristotle used this uh, in reference to metaphysics, but we know that it refers to sacred theology. Now, the church today has recoiled from the idea that theology is the queen of the sciences because it fears the tyrannical rule of an enclosed and rigid dogmatism which might fetter the sciences in their attempts to uncover truth. But to acknowledge theology as queen is not to undermine, or not necessarily to undermine, by any means, the Protestant recovery of the dignity and holiness of all vocations. The queen ought not to suppress, but to elevate all the disciplines, situating them within their true domain and purpose. She does not obviate their special dignity. She points to it and consecrates it. Nervousness about this role of theology in all disciplines and vocations betrays a deep modern concern about the claims that theology will place upon us. Ours is a, the is a society that's unused to church bells marking ordered time for prayer throughout the day. It's unused to seeing a church steeple as the commanding center of a community. Our time is, and space is commanded by other things which push the claims of theology to the periphery, to the Sunday school class, or to the bookshelf. But the fear of the Lord teaches us that God is present in creation and present in us, right? So um, we are not allowed to escape the presence of God. Theology cannot be confined to the realm of the theoretical and the ideal, it has to lay claim to the whole domain of Catholic wisdom in nature and in the world. This is precisely what makes theology true to itself, truly theological theology, unwavering witness to what creation and the gospel teach us about God and about all things in relation to God. Systematic theology is to be commended as biblical and natural, 
both holy fear and the architectonic structure of creation request an ordered account of God and all things in relation to God. And um, wisdom, as taught by kings to their sons and by God to his adopted children, uh, is supremely presented to us in Holy Scripture. So Peter Martyr Vermeule says, the characteristics of the principal faculty, or as Aristotle calls it, the architectonic, should be ascribed to the study of Holy Scripture. For the supreme and chief knowledge of the perfect good is contained therein. Thus God said to the Israelites that theirs will be the wisdom whereby they will be admired at last by all other nations. And then the last um, point that I'll make is the Catholicity of wisdom requires that the Christian philosopher not be a mere cloistered academic, but engaged with the fullness of creation in a hands-on way. The house that wisdom builds is made for hospitality we are invited to partake in wisdom. The wise pursue worshipful dominion of the earth as the dwelling place of humanity, where God has placed before mankind the good gifts of his table of fellowship. Wisdom delights not only in knowledge of things, but in living in a world that it recognizes to be filled with the presence of God. Mere theoretical knowledge or technical proficiency do not constitute wisdom, nor does the mere accumulation of sense experiences make one wise. Something more is needed, a fearless and earnest spirit of exploration, a commitment to drinking widely and drinking deeply, animated by the blessed holy disturbance of the fear of the Lord. I'll close with that thought. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe, and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content, or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.